Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, the podcast where we talk about how our institutions are failing and how to fix them. So political parties are one of the themes that we com- keep coming back to in this podcast, because after all, political parties are really the essential and inevitable institutions of modern representative democracy. But political parties are kind of curious institutions, because what are they really? How are they defined? We, as political scientists, I think, struggle to define them. I think the law struggles to define them. They're not defined anywhere in the U.S. Constitution. So what are they really, and, and what should they be? To help us think through these questions, I'm delighted to have as, have as our guest today, Tabitha Abu el Hajj. Tabitha is a law professor at Drexel University and has written really a very important series of law review articles on the place of American political parties in the law, as well as some, I think, quite compelling visions of what better parties might look like and that help us to envision a a more robust, thicker view of democracy than I think a a lot of scholars of political parties sometimes think about. Uh, So welcome to the podcast, Tabitha. Thank you, Lee. I'm very delighted to be here. So I want to start with a claim that you make in your uh, 2018 Columbia Law Review article, Networking the Party, First Amendment Rights and the Pursuit of Responsive Party Government, which is an excellent and important article. And specifically, this might seem like an odd place to start, but I want to start with a a claim that, that you make in that article, which is that open primaries are on constitutional thin ice, given the current jurisprudence. Prudence. And and I start with this point for two reasons. One, because I think there are a lot of democracy reformers who look at open primaries as a particularly promising approach to uh, reform uh, on the theory that closed primaries are unnecessarily polarizing. It's not a ton of evidence there, but it certainly is a popular theory. And also, I think it's a, it's a useful way in to think about how the courts conceive of what political parties do. Do So tell us why you make that point and, and how that relates to how the law has thought about what political parties are and what they should be doing. So I agree with you. I think most reformers at the moment, um, not or many reformers, are focused on party primaries as a area for reform and um, have focused on open primaries in particular. And one of the things that I write about is how the um, law, the first, the court's First Amendment um, jurisprudence really um, closes that off as a significant option. So an open primary, and, and a lot of the reasoning has to do with the alleged virtues of an open primary. So I just want to lay those out. So for reformers who are arguing for mandatory, and I want to emphasize that as in state-mandated open primaries, Um, the democratic virtues seem to be one that you expand the primary electorate to make it more representative of the general electorate. I think the theory for parties is that it will make parties more capable of winning on election day because they'll have expanded their association. And then third, and this is the critical piece that I do think is central to the reforms, is that um, it will incentivize the selection of more moderate candidates and thus 
modulate the party's message. And that is where you run into First Amendment issues. So the key case here is California Democratic Party versus Jones, which was decided in 2000. And that um, the case um, uh, involved a challenge to California's blanket primary. So in 1996, California voters by ballot initiative replaced the state's closed primary with a so-called blanket primary. Um, and the measure was promoted as a means to weaken party hardliners and ease the way for moderate problem solvers. And can you just explain what a what a blanket primary is for those who might not know? Sure. So a blanket primary was a mod, and we'll come back to this because it's a bit of a nuance. So a blanket primary is slightly different from an open primary. In an open primary, a voter picks which party they want to affiliate with, um, but they don't have to sign on as a party member. So if I'm an independent, I could just say, I'm going to vote in the Republican Party primary today, and that would be okay. But I would be cabined to voting only for candidates in the Republican primary for all offices. California's blanket primary basically said, let's just have a single primary ballot. And um, if you are neither a Democrat nor a Republican, you can still come in and vote in this blanket primary. And as the court says, it's like a cafeteria style a la carte. You can vote um, in the for Democratic candidates for the congressional seat and for a Republican candidate for the state um, Senate. And then presumably, if California has a third party, you could vote for the third party's candidate in a third level of government. So when the parties uh, challenged California's blanket primary, what they argued was basically that they were being forced to associate with non-members and that that was unconstitutional because it was stripping the parties of control over their standard bearer, who would be their messenger, their candidate, and therefore of their message. And that argument was basically accepted by the courts. And one of the things that I write about um, in the article that you referred is that this is really even more broadly than in the context of primaries. When the court thinks about political parties, it views them as ideological speakers, like the fact that they are organizations um, is fine, but what matters for granting them rights is that they are contributors to the ideological marketplace of ideas. Um, and so the measure, basically, of the First Amendment burdens, which is critical for whether you're going to win or lose as the party, turns on the degree to which a state policy interferes with the party message. So if we go back to what I said about open primaries, the open primary said the 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 third and probably most salient justification um, that is offered by reformers for switching to open primaries is that it would moderate the kinds of candidates that would come out of the primary. But it is that very fact that the system is designed to interfere with the party message 
by forcing association upon the party by voters who refuse to affiliate with the party itself that causes the constitutional violation. And that theme you can see in, in any number of cases, and I won't bore, bore your listeners with them, but if you, you know, if you prompted me to, we could see a bunch. <laughs> oh, please, we're a, we're a wonky sort, but a lot of, I want to talk to you about, but I, I do want to ask you, why is California's top two primary okay, whereas the blanket primary is not okay? And does this undermine the constitutional sustainability of the Alaska top four system in which people can vote for Democrats and Republicans and and anybody can vote for anybody? Here's the catch, which is the current court is very formalistic. Well, at least the court when they decided um, the Washington State versus Grange court was, Chief Justice Roberts was. So the challengers to, when it reached the courts, it was to Washington State's non, non-partisan blanket primary, but it is the same basic structure as the two systems that you just identified, California's uh, top two system and the new Alaska system. The challengers made exactly the same argument. They said, look, you've just opened the selection of candidates the process by which we select candidates to non-party members. And your goal, which was pretty explicit in Washington, is to moderate the candidates. So you've run afoul of Jones, California Democratic Party versus Jones. But the Supreme Court, in a formalistic way, said, well, no, this isn't really a, this is not a partisan primary. This is not a partisan blanket primary. It's a nonpartisan blanket primary. And the primary, you know, ballot is very clear that to the degree that candidates identify their partisan um, association, it is the candidates that are identifying. So it's like, I self-identify as a Republican or a Green Party member. Um, And so they said there was no constitutional violation because it was not the party's primary in the first place, and that the candidates that come out of it are not party candidates. They are the two most popular candidates in the entire electoral primary. So that is a very formalistic distinction, but that answers your question. Um, Justice Scalia was not persuaded. He thought that this was ridiculous and that the constitutional harm was this exactly the same in the two situations. So then Alaska being a nonpartisan primary where candidates choose who they want to affiliate with would be okay unless Justice Scalia's view catches on, in which case then it's not okay. Exactly. All right. So it's a little bit of a glass, you know, half full of orange juice or half full of air situation, depending on which way you you look at it. But let's zoom out a little bit here because- I want to make one, just, I want to jump in to just say formally, Jones said that a mandatory open primary was distinguishable from this blanket partisan primary. And I just want to say that so that readers or listeners don't misunderstand. It's technically an open question about the constitutionality of the open primary, but the logic of Jones really um, seems to push for there 
for a, a mandatory open primary being unconstitutional and the decisions that upheld the nonpartisan blanket primary wouldn't necessarily help. And that's sort of what you, the lower courts are a bit divided on this, but mostly where they've upheld them, they've just avoided the issue as an empirical matter. All right. So it's still still out there as an open question. So let's zoom out a little bit and talk about this idea of responsible party government, which is a idea well known to political scientists. The, the most famous APSA report, the 1950 APSA report, which came out just uh, it's a bad time to launch a report when you're going to go into the, the Korean War. So it didn't get a ton of attention at the time, but it, it seems to have shaped how uh, a lot of people, including a lot of people on the bench, think about what party politics ought to be in the United States. So tell us a little bit about how the jurisprudence in the courts has really imbibed that responsible party doctrine and how that's guided the courts to privilege party leaders and parties as speakers and brands. So I think there are two um, ways that the cases really line up with responsible party government. The first is a key element of the responsible party government doctrine was that you needed to have two ideologically distinct political parties that would provide voters a clear choice on election day, and that the choice had to be between two and only two parties, that third parties muddied the waters. So if you look at the sort of series of cases where the court deals with challenges to political parties, what you uh, or sort of challenges brought by political parties to regulations. Um, what you see is whenever there is a challenge to a primary system brought by the two major parties, and the allegation is that the regulation, like a mandatory open primary, or the challenge was really to the partisan blanket primary, is meant to change the party's message, and in particular, to undercut the party leadership's ability to control the message. Because, of course, the party leaders can choose to open their primary. So if the party wishes to moderate its candidates by opening the primary, voters that are members of the party would not have standing to challenge that. So all the rights end up being with the party leader and the primary goal, as I suggested, of the First Amendment doctrine is to protect their ability to define their message. But when you get third parties bringing the same kinds of claims against election regulation, the third parties generally lose. So Timmons versus Twin City is a, a new party is a good example of that, where the third party, the new party, um, wanted to be able to fuse its candidate with the Democratic Party. And they came in and they brought a claim that was very similar to the claim that the challengers to California's partisan um, blanket primary brought, where they basically said, wait, we know who our, who our standard bearer should be. We like the standard bearer, who's the member of the Democratic Farm Labor Party. Um, but this law prevents us from 
putting to the electorate our true standard bearer, and the court rejects that argument. And consistently, third parties get sort of the holdings of the cases come out against them. So I think what you can see in the party uh, in the First Amendment jurisprudence is a commitment to two principles that the party should be supported, the party leadership should be supported in its ability to control its message and who speaks for it and who its candidates are. So if there are internal conflicts, the leaders win over the members and the national party wins over state parties. Um, and wherever there's a push from third parties, generally the court supports the two parties so that it, the stabilization of the two party system. The piece that's missing was that for responsible party government to work, you needed to have party competition because it was party competition in the general electorate that was going to bring the two parties into the center, create moderation, compromise, good governance. And with what we have, as I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast knows, is very, very little party competition. Um, and that means that we have this ability for the general election not necessarily to draw parties to the center. Right. So re responsible party government has not succeeded in doing what the advocates of responsible party government said it was going to do. And I think there are uh, certainly a number of reasons for that. Uh, we have broadly uncompetitive elections. 90% of districts now are, are not competitive. Most states are not competitive. But also, when I think about what, what the uh, folks who were writing that 1950 report were, th were thinking about at the time is that they saw these sort of broad catch-all parties that were quite moderate, and they thought that by having two parties that could offer competing programs, both of those programs would be clear alternatives, but they, they wouldn't be extreme in any way. And I, I don't think they appreciated what would happen when parties were polarized to the extent that almost every voter would have a, have a, essentially a team rooting interest for one of the two parties and not really be able to independently evaluate uh, the parties, in addition to being in uncompetitive districts, uh, and, and also that we just have the wrong political institutions for responsible party government. We're not a Westminster system in which you, it's easy for one party to gain total control and enact its programs. We're, uh, you know, we have a, a bicameral system with a presidential veto. Everybody's elected separately and uh, with some separate timing for the Senate. So uh, all of these things that you would need for even to, to have responsible party government, even if you assume that it could exist in a country as broad and diverse as ours, it, it just can't in the U.S. system. So yeah, I think I think we both agree pretty clearly that it's it's a failure and it's and there's nothing really that can redeem it. It's not like giving party leaders more money or more authority will somehow force moderation, particularly in this current moment in which the parties are so far apart. So that's led us both to think about alternatives to the responsible two-party system. And I want to talk about your alternative, which is associational party building. So what is associational party building and how does it fit into the American political 
tradition and legal tradition as well. The way I think about associational party building is in contrast to the version of party that I just articulated that the court has, where the parties are ideological speakers, they are like corporations, they sell you a brand on election day, you vote as a consumer would, you either buy Pepsi or Coke, that's how it was taught to me in my um, election law class, you know. But what if I don't like sugary beverages? Exactly, that's what I said um, when I was, um, <laughs> as a law student. And on my associational party building, um, as D.D. Quo and I have developed it, um, I think the emphasis is on thinking about political parties as organizations. And what I mean by that is we could just do what social movement activists sometimes do, which is try to make political change through, you know, civic groups, public, the NAACP, other sort of nonpartisan civic associations and political interest groups. For the most part, those interest groups in a world of polarization actually already are aligned with a party. That didn't wasn't as true before, but is true today. Or we could realize that political parties actually um, make the work of politics easier because they provide this structure. Um, and for one, they are federated, which is very helpful in American politics. But if we look at them as organizations that way, then we need to think about, well, what makes a political association powerful? And that is usually its organizational strength and its social ties. Um, and so that's one way of sort of making concrete um, what we mean um, by associational party building. So an associational party is one where the emphasis is on parties as coalitions that bring voters and bring civic associations together around a set of political ends. And um, we articulate there are basically four basic elements um, to this conception of party strength. So on the other conception of party strength, right, we normally think about it's the clarity of your message, it's how much money you have to get that message out. And it's very lately very focused on national politics itself. Um, and when voters are in that model, their consumers, um, parties might spend money um, to get them out on election day, but that sort of is where it ends. The associational party strength would come from the capacity to organize year round. So you would get a focus on engaging with members um, beyond the get out the vote structures. So, you know, that is a 19th century, you know, I don't like to go completely back to nostalgia for the 19th century, but just as a model, right? You might have, think of the party on this model as providing some social spaces or if you've read Michelle Obama's autobiography, I always use that as an example. Her father was a party worker and he went around to like the neighborhood on Sundays, she says, and he would drag her along and he would listen to people about what they were worried about. And so that sort of year round organizational um, capacity and engagement with members, it would be related to that. Um, there would be an emphasis on face to face engagement with um, voters, not just like 
mailings and um, text messages. Um, although I guess text messages these days are face to face because they can be personal. It depends on how personal. Yeah, and you can put in those face emojis. So it's like... <laughs> right, exactly. Um, uh, you would, but you need to invest in parties at the state and local level. You need to have people who were paid to do this kind of work. And then I think one of the things that we um, argue for, which is a shift from that 19th century or or even mid 20th century model, is to recognize that engaging with voters as individuals is not as effective to get the ultimate goal, which would be what we call a two-way street of communications. So not to suggest that party politics would be totally grassroots up, but there would be some listening to constituents about what they needed and the ability to deliver. And in that regard, we say that the party needs to engage with civic and community organizations or the local infrastructure, and that those people have to recognize themselves as also being part of the party. Um, And all of that is towards the end of listening more to figure out what is driving um, people's engagement and disengagement with politics? What are their needs? Not necessarily thinking that people are very are excellent at articulating what their needs are, but that that would be part of the agenda. So I think one thing from my from sort of my end, one of the things that drives this approach is that I have been very sort of influenced by Theta Scotchpool's work talking about the ways in which political elites today are not really grounded in their own communities. And so that the sort of loss of more uh, socioeconomic integration in social networks influences the kinds of elite politics we get. So what we don't want is a return to like the 1950s with a lot of racial and gender exclusion. But what we're looking for and arguing for is a version of party strength that sort of brings forward the sort of social ties and embodied versions of parties from the 1950s and marries them with the more democratic intuitions of the late 20th and 21st centuries and um, that are more inclusionary. So in that way. I love this vision. To me, it's a very appealing vision of what politics should be like. It's, it's a call it a thicker vision of democracy that recognizes that democracy and politics are ultimately social activities. I think we spent so much time trying to analyze politics as if lawmakers were these independent actors, as as if citizens were these independent actors. To me, it's a very neoliberal framework for how we, we think about politics as this kind of market. But in reality, politics is the thing we do together. And, and I, I like this vision because it, it really gets at what I think politics actually is, which is like people talking to each other and making sense of the world and trying to figure out what issues should we care about and what should we think about those issues. But the challenge for me, and I'll just pu- push you on this a little bit, is that sometimes I feel like there's an element of politics that when you, I mean, you, you kind of got at it a little bit in your remarks before that a lot of people just just kind of don't really know what to think about politics and kind of give you all kinds of, of answers that are grounded not in the actual trade-offs of policy, but in just kind of random demands or something that they read about. You know, there's a lot of people who don't really want to do the hard work of learning about the issues. They just want people to tell them what to think. Maybe that's because that's how our politics 
operates, and that's what people expect out of it, whereas we should expect more out of our politics, and that's how people get treated by the parties and political elites. And so most people think, well, let somebody else figure it out because nobody cares what I think anyway. But it, it seems like that's kind of a, a hard cycle to reverse, especially because I think a lot of political elites don't really want to know what most people think uh, because it might engaging more people might challenge them to have to change some views or it might challenge them electorally because in as we talked about before, so much of the country is uh, one party, dominant. So in those places, there's kind of formal or informal leaders within the parties who say, well, wh why do we want to stir up more voters? Because we, we have power under this system. Like it just doesn't, just wouldn't make sense to us. In addition to the, all the, the campaign finance stuff that you've written a lot about as well, that has made it very hard for anybody who's not a super wealthy donor to have access. Uh, so uh, how do you think about the challenges to this view, just in terms of how we would reverse the trajectory that seems like we're on? I mean, I certainly don't think that this is like an easy solution, but I don't think any, I think whatever we do is going to be challenging. And the question is, what are the opportunities and what are the constraints? So the constraint as you articulated, I think is one, what are the incentives for party elites to do this? Let me say a little bit about opportunities. Um, so that's one constraint. And another constraint is, what do you mean by policy responsiveness? Because what if people don't know what they want or don't want to even have to think about it? And I, I think that's a fair consideration. And another constraint, I think, although it's, I'm, can't, I'm not sure if it's a constraint or an opportunity, actually, as I think about it, is we really have a moment where there's huge amount of disillusionment in um, both the government and the parties. So maybe that's an opportunity because that might explain party elites need to make changes, or maybe it's a constraint. Um, hard to know. Or maybe a takeover of a different faction within a party that says, you know, we've got to do things differently because you're not doing a good job. So on the opportunities, I just want to say quickly, and I won't describe in detail, the fact is that some of these things are already going on in certain places, in Nevada, in Georgia, in Florida. We try to show that it's not just theoretically possible, but practically possible. So just to have laid that out before dealing with the constraints, I do think that there's a, a real issue that it's not like you can't mandate it some party elites will not have incentives to do this. I think that one part of our message, though, is it's hard to even know what you mean by party elites or elites. Like, elites right now are very fractured. If those people who see themselves as anti-party wanted to challenge the party, they could, right? So I think that there are incentives for change where those incentives are, they will play out differently in different places. So in a place like Georgia and, Tex uh, Georgia and North Carolina and Texas, I think we have seen one-party states where people realized that the limited electorate meant that that one-party status was less stable. And so the Democratic Party, through people like Stacey Abrams, 
has made shifts, but also North Carolina, there's been a move. So I think we can take a one-party state, and it might not actually necessarily be a one-party state if you look more carefully. I think even in one-party states, there might be more leverage than is initially obvious. So one thing that I find very remarkable is that many of the states that have passed ballot initiatives to raise the minimum wage are traditionally red states. Raising the minimum wage is traditionally considered a progressive policy. That tells me that those red states are, there's more political opportunity maybe there. But currently the people who wanna make change are using the ballot initiative rather than necessarily thinking about how to work through the party. And maybe there is more opportunity for a challenging a party like the Democratic Party coming in to challenge some of those red states or the Republican Party coming in to challenge some of the one party um, blue states. It's hard for me to tell, but I guess I would say in the end, it's going to be electoral interests that will drive the incentives. But the question is, what do you try and do when you have those incentives? And I think right now, some people who want to make reform are so anti-party that they don't think about the party as a place that they can do the things that they are doing um, on the outside. And they don't see the advantages of working through sort of structures that already exist. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel each time. Yeah. And parties are going to be there no matter what. Uh, so it seems like anti-partyism is a denial of reality. Now, another question is how this affects governance, right? So there are many people who might say that responsible and responsive are, are somewhat in tension uh, because often responsible means you have to make complicated decisions. And, and then if the country is divided, who are you being responsive to? Or if people have all kinds of different opinions that there are complicated trade-offs. And you know, I think one concern you might have about a more two-way approach to representation is that it makes it harder, and it's already pretty hard <laughs> for, for lawmakers to actually uh, produce policies uh, that might take half a loaf here, half a loaf there, not not entirely responsive, but within the realm of the the possible, could even undermine the moderation and compromise needed to get stuff done in Washington. Although, again, there's an obvious counter that there's just not a lot of that going on now anyway. So you know, maybe we should try something different. I think I agree. My general stance is uh, I do think it's hard to have people have faith in democracy if there isn't governance. Like you have to actually pass something, which is one of the problems that we have right now is that there's enough gridlock and enough partisan polarization that gets in the way of both delivering goods and making it clear when the government has delivered goods that the, it was the government that delivered the goods. So I'm, I'm very sort of persuaded by Suzanne Mettler's work about sort of the fact that actually the government has been distributing benefits, but a lot of those benefits are invisible because they're regressive and going not necessarily to places that politicians want them to go. I think the question is sort of, what do I mean by responsive? So I think I shy away from the term responsible because it has this 
1950s implication that elites will decide what is responsible and they will mostly produce moderate outcomes and compromise is the is the virtue i actually um i'm not sure i, I think governance is the virtue i'm not really sure either moderation or compromise are per se virtues as opposed to sometimes necessary to achieve an end so that's why i use responsive governance, meaning the government has to be addressing needs of its citizens. That does not, I, I agree with you, most citizens don't know what they need. They just know what they don't like. But if you're not spending a lot of time listening to what they're unhappy about, because related to the campaign finance issue, because most of these sort of elected officials are part of elites where they're mostly listening to what elites are upset about, then I, I think there's a long way to go from the world that I worry we're in, where people are disaffected with government because government is alienated from their needs, um, and the world you're worried about, which is they're going to be very, very demanding, and it's going to be hard for the government to govern. And that's one of the reasons that I emphasize alliances with civic associations is because I think local civic associations do important amounts of mediating work in that regard and paying more attention to sort of participating and listening is key. But I think it's impossible to have legitimacy in governance if you aren't at least listening. So one thing that always strikes me is I think that, and this is just a, a, an example that I'll give, is I think the Republican Party was kind of surprised when Betsy DeVos turned out to be such a flashpoint when she was the Secretary of Education, because I think they forgot that many of their constituents use suburban public schools, and they actually really care about those public schools. And so there was like a elite narrative about sort of you know, needing to sort of privatize schools and charter schools. But then a lot of their own constituents are very tied to public schools. But probably a lot of members of Congress send their kids to private schools, not public schools. So I think it's that level at which I'm talking about the importance of listening and the importance of being part of the community. And, and it also, I think, relates to like what kinds of candidates you field. Are they coming um, are candidates more representative of the communities that they would represent? Um, I, I think it is problematic that many of our elected officials have such elite backgrounds that they might not have grounding in the experiences of more ordinary Americans. And I think that is quite different. And that's why I say I've been influenced by Theda Scotchpole from even the 1950s, when in order to get into political power, you had to be part of a whole range of civic groups. And, you know, and I think that's one of the effects of like the draft and those kinds of connections that were made between elites and the rest of the community through um, military service. And we just had a lot less inequality in our society than both within communities and across communities. I mean, what we have now is a handful of information economy hubs where a lot of the elites gravitate towards, including Washington, D.C., so there's just been this incredible sorting in our population and our politics between the cities, which have become overwhelmingly democratic, 
and culturally liberal and the periphery, I guess, the, the small towns, rural areas, more land-based economy, um, you know, which the traditional conservative values have stuck around, but there's now more and more resentment towards those information economy cities. And that, of course, plays upon uh, our system of single winner elections, the two-party system. So, of course, we have to get to the point in the podcast where I talk about how the two-party system itself may be part of the problem, both because of the way it has separated Americans into two very different information and cultural echo chambers, and you know, also the way that those the part it has created so many non-competitive districts, uh, and uh, the way in which the the parties themselves, as you've said, there's a lot of factions with within both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. It's not it's not that they're so unified, but what holds them together is that they can unify around a common enemy, which then leads to all this negative polarization a negative partisanship, effective polarization, all of which seems to me presents a, a significant obstacle to doing the associational party billing because it's a lot easier to get people just on fire by sending them emails about how Democrats are going to blow up America or Republicans are going to blow up America. So is there a way to, to build associational parties within the two-party system, you think? or or it, And I mean, I guess, I guess the other thing that, that I take away from this um, conversation about the law is that the Supreme Court is also hostile to, would be hostile to third parties. And the law has, in many ways, has, has pushed the U.S. to a two-party system that I think is clearly destructive. So how should I be thinking about this? How should we all be thinking about this? The, the relationship between the party system and the types of parties and how they operate. So the first thing I want to say is I think the virtue of this as a reform strategy is it doesn't require either Congress or offend the courts. So what it does require is um, capturing the imagination of people with political gripes. And I think there are plenty of those. Can it happen within the two-party <laughs> yes. system? I think it ha it is happening to some degree within the two-party system already. So I think that um, Stacey Abrams in Georgia is a good example of someone concertedly trying this kind of party building. You see a little bit of it, and we talk about it with Jim Banks's proposals for the Republican Party, and we talk about Harry Reid in Nevada. Um, I, I do think it isn't going to happen nationwide. And I think one of the things that um, Didi and I are pushing also is to think, you know, Congress is... I think we should all give up on Congress right now for a decade. Politics is <laughs> well, like a long A lot of game. people have already. <laughs> right. So the question is at the state and local level, what's possible? And if you want to make changes at the state and local level, what kind of party, like, and you're progressive. I mean, this is definitely an agenda. I think that works better for people who are progressive or people who care more about small D Democrats, people outside of the party. How can you think about reimagining what a party is? On the third two-party, three-party system or multi-party system, I, I guess what I think is, I think it could be that in some one-party states, the solution is to have a third party do the party building. And if you have a third party, that third party would have the interest to do 
like the incentives to do associational party building, right? If you take um, moderates who were politically engaged and are frustrated with either one or the other political party, though probably these days it's more the Republicans, they both have the um, not political knowledge and the incentive to try and steal voters from the two parties. And I think that if they were to focus on local and state elections as the place to begin, then this associational party building would probably be a really good strategy for them because what they would be trying to do is work the social ties with voters who are aligned with, say, the Republican Party, but worried about certain directions. So they would be able to take it out of the, like, it's either in a one party state, they would be able to say, you know, don't, I'm not asking you to vote for those horrible Democrats. We can all agree that they're awful, right? But why don't you come and we'll listen to you and we'll see what do you like about the Republican Party? Yeah. Well, I agree there. Well, thank you, Tabitha. This is a good point to to end on the the agreement, the importance of party building as the uh, the path to reform. And and this has been a, a really uh, great conversation. I think it's really important to think about what parties are, what they should be, and you know, also bringing this perspective of what they are in the law and what and how that also shapes how we should think about parties is just incredibly valuable. I, I, I love this thicker vision of what democracy and what party democracy ought to be. I think it's inspiring and I think it's where I hope we can get to in this country because otherwise it looks not so, not so bright. So this has been another episode of Politics in Question and we'll be back with you next week. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This podcast is a partnership between New America and the R Street Institute. Our producer is Elizabeth Lucero, and our audio engineer is Shannon Lynch. The theme music is composed and performed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.